a special welcome uh, to all of you dads. It's great to have the dads in the house. How many of you are grateful the dads are here? Give the dads a big hand. Say, thanks for coming today. Good to have you here. I don't know if you've ever uh, watched Jimmy Fallon. Uh, he does something called hashtags. And uh, what he does is he has people hashtag into him, uh, you know, quotes or thoughts about certain things. So I picked up a few of them, you know, kind of dad quotes. Dads, dads are notorious for having, you know, lines of wisdom. Dads like to get to the bottom line. Dads like to summarize. Dads like to kind of end things quickly. And so I, I picked up a few of these that I thought you might were funny today and uh, that, that would... Maybe it would remind you of some of the one-liners that your dad said. These are actual things that dads have said that people just uh, hashtagged in and said, look, this is something my dad used to say, good, bad, or ugly. Here's the first one. When I asked my dad why he was wearing sunglasses inside, he responded with, the sun never sets on the cool. <laughs> I think that's a good one. I, think that's, I like that one. Well, probably my favorite. As a kid, my dad made me wear safety goggles just to ride my bike around. He'd always say, just think how ugly you'd be without eyes. <laughs> Pretty good one, too. No matter how many times we correct him, he still thinks Facebook's called my face. <laughs> how, many, how many of your dads think it's called my face, right? Or Spacebook. When meeting my then-boyfriend, my dad tossed him a bullet and said, you won't be able to catch the next one. <laughs> Come on, how many dads and daughters we got out there? Yeah? That's a good one. I'm not yelling at you, I'm helping you here. Just to be clear, I'm not yelling at you, I'm helping you here. I like that one. Well, I want to say a great big welcome to, to dads. And on your way out today, if you hadn't had an opportunity yet, we have the tie wall. So you can go over just through the back doors on the left. On your way out is a big wall of ties. It's a great place for you to get a picture with your dad to be something that you can remember today. And if you would, when you get it, just share it, uh, hashtag Kingwood Dads. Just share it, and it'll be fun to follow that stream of pictures through the day and, uh, and see all the amazing dads. So we're continuing our series we started a few weeks ago called When the Walls Are Gone. Our, our tradition in the last few years has been to do a book study in the summer. And so this summer we're studying the book of Nehemiah. Generally, we do topical series, but, to, but in the summer, we've been doing book studies. So we're studying Nehemiah. We've called it When the Walls Are Gone. Let me just refresh your memory a little bit on the backdrop of the book of Nehemiah so you'll understand the scriptures we're reading today from chapter 2, 11 through 20. 445 years before Jesus was born, Jerusalem was in ruins. The walls had been breached. Uh, the gates were burned off. Anybody could wander in and out of the city of Jerusalem anytime they wanted. Now, it's hard for us to understand today how important the walls were to that city because our cities don't have walls around them anymore, at least not physical ones that you can see. We tend to worry about cyber walls and firewalls and cybersecurity and screening before you go get on an airplane or into a public event or something like that. This fledgling little community of survivors who had been slaves for nearly a hundred years, are reunited with other survivors in their war-torn home. So it, it, it's there, but it's a fraction of what it was. They were surrounded by hostile nations, not to mention wild animals and criminals. And without walls, it's impossible in that time frame to defend yourself, to protect your children, to, to uh, grow crops. To, to, without walls, you couldn't have a city. Uh, you were vulnerable to attack on every side. 
because there were gates on every side. The walls were gone in Jerusalem because Jerusalem had turned their back on God, and God told them very clearly, if you turn your back on me, I will bring the city to destruction, and you will go into slavery, uh, which is what always happens when we take our, turn our back on God. We go into some kind of slavery or another. We go into bondage. There's nowhere to go away from God but into bondage. Toward God is freedom. Away from God is bondage. And that's what happened to these people. It happened physically and spiritually as well. So the walls are gone because they turned their back on God. God allowed the Babylonian nation, Babylon, the great Babylon, to come in and overtake Jerusalem, haul a bunch of them off into slavery, into exile. Then the Persians overthrew the Babylonians, and the Persian king now is giving permission to the Israelites to go back home. So Last, uh, the first week we talked about chapter 1. Chapter 1 is where Nehemiah hears about the condition of the city. And he goes into four months of weeping and fasting and praying. And, and, uh, and what happened, what the book of Nehemiah is, is it's what happened after the hundred years of slavery when the Persians took over and Israel started to come back home to Jerusalem. The whole book of Nehemiah is really about what happened now. So the, the slaves were released over decades in three waves. Zerubbabel, if you've ever heard that name, led the first wave. Ezra the priest led the second wave. And Nehemiah led the third wave. So chapter 1 is Nehemiah hearing about how bad the city is. He cries, he weeps, he fasts, he mourns, he prays. Chapter 2 that Pastor Mark shared last week, the first half, Nehemiah gets permission from the king of Persia, 50 million people in this empire. Nehemiah gets permission from him to go back to Jerusalem to survey the city and to rebuild the walls. And then, and then finally, uh, he, Nehemiah leads the third wave of captives back home. So verse 11 is where we pick up today. If you have your Bible open, Nehemiah 2.11. I went to Jerusalem and after staying there three days. So you've got to remember in the book of Nehemiah, as we've said, uh, this is like um, uh, the, Bible, the Bible and cliff notes. Because enormous amounts of time are summarized in single sentences or paragraphs. It just jumps from one thing to another. You know, chapter 2, the first half says, the king gave me permission to go. All of a sudden, in verse 11, he pops up in Jerusalem. So I went to Jerusalem, like he, you know, sort of zapped over there. But it summarized a lot, a lot of different time. Uh, Nehemiah gets permission, he shows up. So enough time has passed, though, if you read through all of chapter 2, that people have already heard, there's a spy somewhere, because people have already heard that Nehemiah's coming to town, and he's coming to town to benefit Israel, to benefit Jerusalem. He shows up with his whole entourage, and, and he, he goes about his task. He's traveled a thousand miles. So that's how much time has gone by, which would take two to four months, depending on what route he took. So here's the question. What do you do when the walls are gone, and God is ready to do a work of restoration. What do you do when the walls are gone, when the protection is gone, when the security is gone, when the structure is gone, and God's ready to do a work of restoration? What do you do when things are not the way God wants them to be? What do you do when the walls in your life are torn down? Is everything in your life this morning exactly the way God wants it to be? Probably not. <laughs> then what do you do? Maybe you're struggling in a relationship. Maybe you're struggling at work. Maybe, maybe you're struggling to find purpose. 
Maybe you're struggling to find what God made you to be and what God made you to do. Maybe you're struggling with decisions about the future. Maybe you're struggling with with apathy or spiritual deadness or sin or addiction. What do you do when the community you live in is walking away from God? What do you do? I don't know if you saw the report this week. Uh, uh, The police just caught on the Highway 280 corridor a sex trafficking, a guy that was working in sex sex trafficking uh, across the hotels all over Highway 280, and he's now in jail, $100,000 bond. I don't know if you caught that this week. What do you do when the city you live in, what do you do when the county you live in, what do you do when the community you live in is walking away from God? What do you do when drugs are rampant and apathy is rampant and, and, and uh, uh, anti-Christian thinking is continuing to spread? You and I live in crisis times. We don't live in normal times. We don't live in everyday times. We don't live in passive times. We don't live in times when spiritual life and vitality is normal. We live in times of crisis. And I can't find anybody who's predicting it's going to get better. I don't even come to throw a prophet of doom rock on you on Father's Day. I'm just saying, what do you do when these things are going on and God wants to restore? Look at verse 12. Nehemiah says, I set out during the night with a few others. This is a very important verse. If I could get you to remember one verse after you leave today, it would be this one. I had not told anyone what my God had put in my heart to do for, for Jerusalem. There were no mounts with me except the one I was riding on. So if you're taking notes this morning, let me give you three things to do when the walls are down and God's ready to do a work of restoration in your life, in your family, in your job, in your city, in your church. It does not matter where. Let me give you three things. Here's the first one. Number one, find what God has put in your heart. Find what God has put in your heart. You can't do everything, but that doesn't mean that you can't do something. God has called you to something. God has gifted you to something. God has designed you for something. Nehemiah was a wall builder. He didn't build the temple. He didn't build the city. He didn't do it all, but he did something, and he did something very important. He rebuilt the wall. So let's break this verse down into its parts. I had not told anyone what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. I see three very important words inside that sentence that'll help us understand how to find what God has put in our heart. Here's the first one. The word, first word is God. <laughs> so you, if you're taking, if you got something to write, circle that. There are ideas that come from God and there are ideas that come from us. And we are drowning in a melting pot of ideas today. One of the things that technology does is it gives you the illusion that you're smarter than you are because you have greater access to knowledge. That's one of the illusions that technology does. I think technology makes you faster. It doesn't necessarily make you smarter. So we move faster. What would be my example for that? Oh, I don't know. Facebook. I don't know if you just scroll that sometimes you go, boy, that is really dumb. That is dumb. That is dumb. That is dumb. That's okay. That's really dumb. And you're just looking at your own feed. (laughs) You know why? Speed kills. Speed kills. One of the things you lose when you move too fast is wisdom. 
You might have a lot of knowledge, but you lose wisdom. Nehemiah was a man filled with wisdom. He waited for four months on the king before he even broached the subject. He came to Jerusalem and waited three days before he told anybody what he wanted to do. He went out at night and surveyed the city privately alone. He was the only one riding any animal, and he had a few people surrounding him, and he didn't tell anybody what God had put on his heart to do. You know what that's called? That's called wisdom. See, there are ideas that God has given you, and there are ideas that come from everywhere else, and those ideas are not the same. So how do you know what God's put in your heart? Well, the first word's God. The second word in that sentence is heart. I did not tell anyone what God had put in my heart. In my heart. God puts these ideas in our hearts. They are stirrings. They, are, they feel creative. They feel hopeful. They feel like they're emerging. They are stirring. They, are, they, they awaken and aliven something inside of us when God puts ideas. A good place to start when you're looking for what God's, uh, God put in you is in your passions. What moves your heart? What are you passionate about? That doesn't mean that everything you're passionate about comes from God, but it does mean that your highest calling will always be connected to your passion. It'll move your heart. I, I love passionate people. I love to see passion. I love to see people do things with passion. I can remember uh, early in the, in the 2000s, I think it was, maybe in the late 90s, I can remember when Food Network first got started and Emerald Lagasse first had a show. How many ever watch Emerald? You remember Emerald? Oh, yeah, yeah, I loved it. I couldn't get enough. I couldn't DVR it. That wasn't really available yet. So I just have to, like, set my watch. Remember when you had to show up at TV at a certain time? You couldn't, like, do it when you wanted to? Man, I had to, like, go, Emerald, when's Emerald coming on? When's that come on? You had to check the schedule, plan your whole life around it. It was a whole thing. I, I couldn't wait to see Emerald. Because I never seen a guy cook. Like, cooking shows were, had to be, like, the most boring thing I'd ever seen. Until Emerald came along. And I don't know if you ever saw that six-foot pepper grinder he would pull out. And he'd <laughs> grind stuff, and then he'd start, bam, bam, with confectioner sugar. He'd kick it up a notch. He'd turn the stove, and he'd make jokes. And he was all hunked over like this. And he wouldn't even make eye contact hard with people. He was into what he was doing. I was drunk on it. I couldn't get enough because he was, he was passionate. Do you have any passions like that in your life? Is there anything God has put in your heart that stirs you? I have some passions in my life. I've already planned my 70th birthday party. I'm not kidding. I've planned it. And you know what I want to happen on that day? I want to gather with my family. I want to gather with my, however big that group's gotten by that point, kids, grandkids, I want to pull together. And I'm praying and I'm longing and I'm dreaming and I'm hoping on that day we can stand and celebrate something together in unity that every one of them has a relationship with Jesus Christ. That's what I'm hoping. Nothing is better than that to me. I would give anything. But obviously, there's a lot of things got to go right for that to happen. I don't have total control over it. But I will give anything. I will give my job. I will give my house. I will give anything I have to know that when I walk in heaven, those that I love will walk in there with me. That's a passion. God puts that in your heart. I, I want the number of Christians in Shelby County to go up. 
It's not okay for me to be your pastor and us to sit here and worship and live our Christian life and just watch the population of Shelby County, the Christians, that just shrink off. That's like not okay. It's not okay. It's on our watch. It's at our time. God puts those ideas in us for his purposes and his glory. So God puts in Nehemiah's heart. Now here's the other word that's important. I did not tell anyone what God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. One of the ways that you know it's an idea that God put in your heart is that it will be for others. Other people will get more benefit out of it than you do. Don't tell me about your dream to own an RV and drive to every state in America. Don't tell me about your vacation home that you want to own one day. Don't tell me you plan to travel and see the seven wonders of the world. Don't tell me about your dream house and its dimensions and how many swimming pools and how many acres you're going to have with it. Those dreams may be good ideas, but they're not God ideas. And they are not for others, they are for you. What has God put in your heart for others? What has he put inside there? When you pursue ideas that are good ideas, and when you pursue your ideas, and you pursue your dreams, they last for a moment. But when you pursue God ideas, they touch eternity, and they last forever. And it's a whole different deal. After surveying the city, Nehemiah convinces the people to start rebuilding the wall. And the people respond enthusiastically, and they start rebuilding the wall. But look at verse 19. But when Sanballat, you know, any guy named Sanballat's got a problem. When Sanballat, the Horonite, Tobiah, the Ammonite, official, and Geshem, the Arab, heard about it. So these are kings, probably, of, of uh, other people, people groups, within maybe 15 or 20 miles around Jerusalem. They hear about it, they mocked, and they ridiculed us, Nehemiah says. What is this you're doing, they ask? Are you rebelling against the king? Now, that is a loaded question that you couldn't possibly understand the full, the full implication of unless you know some of the history. This question is loaded. This is not the first time someone has attempted to rebuild this city. One of the other groups, remember, they came home in three waves across decades. And one of those other waves, when they returned to Jerusalem, jumped in and said, I'm going to rebuild this thing. And they jumped in to rebuild it, but it was undermined by a bad PR campaign. Now, originally, as we studied the book of Nehemiah, this will be helpful for you to know, originally Ezra and Nehemiah were one book. In Hebrew, Ezra and Nehemiah are one book. Not until the Bible was translated into Latin were Ezra and Nehemiah separated. So a lot of the backdrop or a lot of the story that you'll get that's current or relevant to Nehemiah is also found in the book of Ezra. So in Ezra chapter 4, there are two letters written. This is in the past, not when Nehemiah is there, but this is when an attempt was to made, made to rebuild before. Two letters are written. One letter is written to the king that basically says, Hey, look, king, I don't know if you know what's going on out here in Jerusalem, but these no-good so-and-sos, they're trying to rebuild the city, and they're trying to rebuild the walls, and they're trying to get this thing going again. And by the way, they're so no-good, if they get that thing rebuilt, they'll never pay taxes again. You'll never see another dime. And so the king sends a letter back 
in Ezra 4.12, you can, you can read uh, what the letter addressed to the king says. The king should know, these are the accusers, that the people who came up to us from you have gone to Jerusalem, are rebuilding that rebellious and wicked city, terrible Jerusalem. They're restoring the walls and repairing the foundation. The king fires a letter back and says, stop them now. That's all the permission that these troublemakers needed. And they went in, if you read in Ezra 4, they went in and stopped them by force. They, they, they overpowered them. So here's the thing. The last time that somebody tried to rebuild this city and rebuild these walls, it was viewed as a rebellion against the king, and the attempt was squashed by other nations around Jerusalem. Here's the key word. It was a failure. So what's different this time? Nehemiah comes rolling into town, and, and he'd never even been there before. And these people are looking at him like, how's it going to work this time? So here's the thing. Find what God put on your heart to do. Here's the second point. Forget your failures. If you're going to be what God wants you to be, and you're going to do what God wants you to do, you've got to live with a shorter memory. You've got to begin to forget what you've done wrong and forget your failures. Do you know that most people that fail, fail a lot before they succeed? <laughs> do, uh, do you know that most people that succeed, fail more than they succeed? But they've got to learn to deal with those failures. Most of our greatest successes lead directly to failures. Nehemiah somehow had to convince the people that this time would be different. Now that's a challenge. Nehemiah grew up in Persia. Nehemiah's not from there. Nehemiah doesn't know most of them. Now that would be an incredible challenge to just come rolling in town with his entourage as a stranger and say, hey, by the way, God's hand is on me and he put this in my heart and he's given me the favor of the king. Now I, I've... I've spent a lot of years uh, coaching football and basketball. I've never coached baseball or other sports, but I've coached those two. I would assume it's true in all sports because people are the same. But it's interesting to me, the hardest thing to get an athlete to do of any age is to forget their own failures. It's human nature to, to be drugged down by what we do wrong. You, 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 there's, there's a kid, you strap the helmet on, you get the chin, you pat him on the helmet, he runs out there and does the dumbest thing you've ever seen. And so what do you do? You pull him over, you put your arm, hey, 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 don't worry about it. Look, it's a bad play, everybody has bad plays, shake it off, don't worry about it, you're a good player, tap him on the helmet, uh, get back out there and focus on the next play. And you know what that kid does? That kid goes back out there and the majority of the time they do another bad play. And you know why? Because they can't forget the last bad play. And no matter how many times you say, forget the bad play, forget it. It's okay. Everybody makes a bad play. Everybody makes a dumb mistake. Just go out there and forget it and now play this play. Almost invariably, that kid will go out there and mess up for a while till they can work themselves out of the emotional funk that they feel because of how bad that play was, how much they let their team down, how poorly they performed. They go out there and almost sabotage themselves. More times than not, they do it. Why? They cannot forget their own failures. The best athletes I've ever seen can go and do the dumbest play you've ever seen in your life and go right back out there and then do something incredible the next play. You know why? They can move past their failures. You know what I find? People off the field are a lot like they are on the field. We have the hardest time moving past our failures. 
We have the toughest time. And you may say, you know what, you weren't there. You, 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 don't, you don't know how much pain I've caused. Can I tell you, everybody who does something bad thinks that they've done the worst thing that anybody's ever done. Everybody that does something bad, one of the ways you know you're living in condemnation is you think your sin's unique. Say that again. One of the ways you know you're living in condemnation is you think your sin's unique. You think you've done something, and if everybody knew, and if people knew today, here you are in church all dressed up on fire, and if people knew, they would, oh man, if they knew this. Can I tell you something? Your sin's not unique. Somebody else has done it. And somebody else has recovered from it. And if they can recover from it, you can recover from it. And if they can move on, you can move on. And your sin's not outside the grace of God. Your sin's not greater than the grace of God. God has put some great things in your heart. And dwelling on what you did wrong is not going to change it. Sacrificing the future to punish yourself from the past is not going to help. God has great plans for you. Look, it might take some apologies. It might take some trust rebuilding. It might take some forgiveness. It might take repaying some debts. It may take some honesty. But get moving because you're wasting your future. Don't waste your future. Whatever you have to do, forget your failures. That's the way Nehemiah says to Israel, this wall's only going to re get rebuilt one way. We got to forget about the last time when we tried to rebuild it and we failed. It's not going to happen like that. So we got to forget that. Here's the, here's the last thought. Be faithful in resistance. Now let me add uh, something to this. And by the way, expect resistance. Expect resistance. No one's going to resist you when you're going to the bar and you're flirting with the coworker and you're looking at pornography and you're taking some shortcuts in the business to make a little extra money on the side, to undermine your coworkers, to climb the corporate ladder by stabbing people in the back. Nobody's going to resist you then, but just wait till you begin to do what God has put in your heart to do. And then you'll see resistance. I remember when I was in high school, and my 11th and 12th grade year, our high school went through a lot of turmoil, a lot of problems, a lot of internal problems in the faculty and staff and firing and all kind of crazy stuff. But, but God had done some really powerful things in those years prior. And, and in that wave of God's work, I was caught up. That, that's where I got, I became a Christian, that's where I got saved. That's where I began to walk with God. That's where I began to learn about Christianity. That's where my life really began to change. And I can remember my senior year, I don't even remember who asked me to do it, but I ended up doing a devotional the last, say, 10 minutes of lunch every day. My whole senior year, five days a week, the end of lunch, I'd do a devotional. I had no idea what I was doing, but I did a devotional. And so I can remember when I'd walk into the gym, you know, uh, people would roll their eyes, oh my gosh. Here he comes. We're going to do a devotional. Then they'd say, here comes the preacher. You know what I found funny about that? Not one of them ever resisted me when I was confused and I didn't know who I was and I was going the wrong way and I was hanging around the wrong people and I was doing the wrong things. Not one of them ever resisted me then. But you try to do what God has put in your heart to do and you watch the fangs come out. 
That's when the resistance is going to come. Some of you this morning, you know, you decided, today, whatever, whatever caused you to decide it, I'm going to do something godly today. I'm going to do something godly. I'm, I'm going to go to church on Father's Day, and boy, did you face resistance. Your clothes wouldn't fit, and somebody ironed a hole in something, and, and the car wouldn't crank, and the breakfast was burnt, and somebody overslept, and nothing seemed to work. But boy, if you were going to the iron bowl, I bet none of that would have happened. But you set your heart on something that God wants done, and you watch the resistance mount. It always happens. So how do you handle resistance? There's not really a flashy answer. Be faithful in resistance. That's how you handle it. Be faithful to what God has put into your heart. Why? Verse 20 tells us, Nehemiah, this is Nehemiah's answer to when they said, Oh, are you, is this rebellion to the king? Here's what Nehemiah says. I answered them by saying, The God of heaven will give us success. In other words, this isn't up to you. The God of heaven will give us success. We, his servants, will start rebuilding. But as for you, you have no share in Jerusalem or any claim or any historic right. In other words, you're trespassing. Go back to where you came from. This isn't your city. This isn't your people. This isn't your destiny. This isn't your legacy. This isn't your vision. None of this belongs to you. The God of heaven is going to give us success because this belongs to him. So they pulled the remember what happened last time deal. That's what they pulled. But this time's different. Nehemiah has been given permission by the king, and God's hand is on him. And last time, watch this, was just a good idea when they wanted to rebuild the wall. This time, it's a God idea. Because if it had been a God idea, it would have succeeded. Nehemiah has God's authority and man's authority, and all these guys have is a bluff. They're trying to go, or don't make us write another letter. We'll fire a letter off to the king, and he'll fire one back. And, and they knew it wouldn't happen, and Nehemiah knew it wouldn't happen. Let me tell you something this morning. The devil has no real authority over you in your life. All he's got is a bluff. That's all he's got. And if you don't call his bluff, he will bully you, and he will stop the work of God in your life. If you are doing what God has put in your heart to do, God's hand is on you, and you will succeed. The only thing the devil can do is bluff you. And I'm going to say on Father's Day, it's time for some men to stand up and call the bluff. Nehemiah was not a priest. He was not a king. He was not a prophet. He was a guy. And I love that about him. I love it. He's a guy. He's a man. He didn't have a religious title or he wasn't a pastor or, a, you know, anything like that. And you know what that sounds like to me? It sounds a lot like dad. Every, every pioneer and every king and priest and prophet and trailblazer has someone in their life who, who you probably never even heard of, who've made a sacrificial contribution to their life, or that person would have never been successful. 
We might read about Ezra and standing and reading the law and rebuilding the temple and how there was revival in Jerusalem and that gave birth to, to the, the context and the community that Jesus was going to be born in. We may hear about the prophets and, the, and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezra and all the people. You know what? Without Nehemiah, there's no walls. And without walls, there's no city. Without dads... There's no walls. We need dads. Plain old, ordinary, everyday, spiritually charged, passionate. You found what God put in your heart. You've turned your heart towards your kids, and you're willing to lay your life down for their spiritual eternity. Dads. That's why I love Nehemiah. Just like a dad. I, I, I want to close this morning with... The best dad story I've ever heard. We're a generation away, probably by this point, so some of you may have never even have heard his name. But Dr. James Dobson, in 1977, started a ministry called Focus on the Family. He started with a radio broadcast. It was a family advice show, uh, and uh, it was called Let's Get Acquainted. Let's get acquainted. And as that show grew and the need for his voice expanded, there, there needed to be a voice in America about the family. There needed to be a Christian perspective about the family. And as his voice caught on in America and his focus on the family expanded, it expanded into Colorado Springs, into a campus of 46 acres, 1,400 employees, the show was heard in 155 nations, 220 million people listened every day. Unbelievable scope. 5,000 stations carried his show. A few years ago, uh, in, in 07, I think, Stacy and I and our boys were out in Colorado, and on our way to the airport, I thought, hey, let's go by and see Focus on the Family. I've never seen it. I had, I had no idea. I thought we were just going to wheel in for a minute kind of walk around, kick, kick the building, you know, go back, go home, no big deal. It was unbelievable. The first guest center building was three stories and had a, a, a Disney-style jungle room in the bottom with a slide that went down three, sta uh, three stories, and everything was meant to be an environmental teaching center about the Bible about God, about God's love for the family, it was unbelievable. And, and I can remember, may, maybe you have heard of him, maybe you haven't. Maybe you know how wide the scope of his ministry went, maybe you don't. But let me tell you the turning point and how it started. James Dobson's dad was an evangelist. He was a Nazarene. He traveled around the country and he would preach revivals. This is a long, long time ago. He'd preach revivals. And he would be gone many times for a week, two weeks, three weeks at a time. Then he'd come home. He'd be gone. Then he'd come home. And he became very, very popular. And he was booked up for two or three years in advance. And when James Dobson turned about 15 or 16, something happened and he went into pretty strong rebellion. He started rebelling, and his mom couldn't handle him. 
and he had all these flare-ups and all these problems were happening. And James Dobson says, as far as I know, this is the only conversation my mom and dad ever had. He said, I still remember the phone ringing. You know, back in the day when you had one phone on a sacred table with a little light on it and curtains. The phone rang. And my dad was calling to check in. And my mom said, this isn't working. I need you home. And to my knowledge, he says, I never heard another conversation from him. He said, I was around the corner listening. And he said, my mom hung the phone up. And my dad canceled three years of meetings. And he came home. And he started pastoring a little small church. And he said the next two to three years, nothing happened. Really, nothing big. He said we hunted a lot and we fished a lot. And we spent a lot of time together. And he said that time calmed the rebellion in my heart and it just allowed me to feel my father's love and I corrected and I came out of rebellion and I was restored to my family and to God he said but my dad's career never recovered Never was he that popular again. Never was he able to travel the way he was before. Never was he able to minister in the capacity he was before. He just pastored a couple little churches the rest of his life. He sacrificed everything for me. And I was hearing him tell this on a radio broadcast from Colorado Springs from this 46 acre campus and I heard him on the radio say and I wish that he were here today and I wish that he could see this campus today because everywhere I look I see his face everywhere I look I see him I see his sacrifice I see his words of love I feel his hand on my shoulder his hand of affirmation just loving me and being beside me he said this whole thing happened because of my dad you may think you're just building a wall you may think you're not doing much important but I'm going to tell you no matter how small it looks if you put your hand to do what God put in your heart to do great things are coming great things and maybe like his dad you won't even get to see him but it really doesn't matter you put your hand to the job in faith and God will do the rest would you stand with me this morning and I want to ask today for every for every dad I want to pray with you today would you come this morning and join me here? Matter of fact, every, every man, every guy, every teenager, if you're, if you're male, would you come and just stand here with me? I just want to pray with you on Father's Day. This is, today is a celebration of the gift that God gave to the family of dad. 
Come on, guys. In the balcony, we'll wait for you. Please, please come. I won't embarrass you. won't do anything. I don't care how long it takes. I just want to be here with you for a minute. Come on, come on in if you don't mind, guys. It's kind of sort of spread out. It's going to take a little bit of room for everybody to get here. This is one of those moments of goodness that I just like to last longer than it can. When I look at your faces, I look at generations, I look at young dads and old dads and emptiness dads and man the potential the potential to change history to change the future to change a child's life to change a family to change the city and it's sitting right here right here what is God put in your heart to do man let's find it and let's do it with everything we got. Be a man of passion and a man of faith and a man of spiritual life and a man of prayer. I love you. I'm so proud you're here today. Do you know in America the lowest attended Sunday is Father's Day? And do you know that's never been true at Kingwood and it's not true because of you? And I just want to celebrate you today, and I want to thank you for being a spiritual leader, and I want to thank you for being an influence, and I want to thank you for having an impact not only on your family, but on my life and the life of this church. When you're missing, something's missing. When you're here, like, like James Dobson said, I don't even remember what we did. He was just there. Don't underestimate your presence. Your presence, isn't that right, is critical. Just being there, man. Can I, can I pray for you? I'll just, I'll, just, I'll talk to you all day because I love you. And I, and I love dads. I love what you mean and what you stand for. I'm thankful for you. Would you just close your eyes for a minute? I want to pray with you. Maybe you don't have to be a dad. You don't have to be a male. You don't even have to be at this altar. Maybe you're in the room and you say, you know, the truth is, I'm not exactly sure what God has put in my heart to do. Would you pray for me today that I would find what God has put in my heart to do? Would you just lift your hand and say, that's me? Uh, male, female, child, adult, it doesn't matter. Just lift your hand and say, God, help me. Maybe you're at a transition point. Maybe you're an empty nester. Maybe whatever. This is a change of season for you to say, pray for me. I'm going to pray for you. Maybe you're here today and you say, you know what? When you talk about failures, I've got some failures that I've done. And I need God's grace today to forget those, to be forgiven, to forgive myself, to move on into the future. Front to the back, the balcony, anywhere in the room. Lift your hand and say, pray for me today. Uh, that's me. That's me. Man, I need a new start today. I need to let go of some stuff. Hey, some weights are about to fall off, y'all. Some chains are about to fall to the ground. So people are going to walk out of here more free than they walk in, I promise you. Maybe you're here today and you say, you know what? I'm in the middle of a storm. I'm in the middle of resistance. Would you pray for me that God will help me to be faithful? Would you just lift your hand and say, pray for me. I need strength to be faithful right now. Yes, yes, yes. I want to pray for you right now. Just lift your hand. If any of those were yours, just lift your hand and say, God, right now I receive. Lord, I receive grace and strength. Lord, I pray for the dads and the men and the women and the people in this room who came together today and said, I need your help to find what you've put in my heart. 
God, I pray for illumination and clarity. I pray that passions would rise. I pray that you would help us to see and understand what you designed us to do. Help us to find our eternal and God-given purpose. Lord, I pray right now for all of those who have had failures in their life, and I call the bluff of the enemy right now. I call the bluff of the devil. There is therefore now no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus that walk according to the Spirit and not according to the flesh. Lord, today we minister hope and life. I pray for forgiveness. Would you just... Would you just say that? Don't ask for forgiveness. I don't want anybody today to ask for forgiveness. If this is your prayer, I want you to say this. Dear Jesus, I receive your forgiveness. I am forgiven. I am clean. I am washed. Help me to do the things I need to do to walk in restoration. Lord, I pray for those that are struggling today in a season of resistance and attack that you would let the fruit of the Holy Spirit of faithfulness be produced now. God, we pray for energy and refreshing and renewal and life and peace. Joy. Nehemiah said, the joy of the Lord will be your strength. God, I pray you would release joy in this place today. Jesus mighty name Jesus mighty name Jesus name would you give these men a great big hand this morning and show your appreciation to, to who they are and what they're doing for God Lord we appreciate this morning now before you leave would you celebrate the work that God did in this house even louder even stronger would you say Lord we bless you today we thank you for your grace we thank you for your presence. We thank you, God. You are here. You are restoring. You are working. You are free. There's liberty in this place. We praise you today. We thank you for it. Jesus. Hey, God bless you guys. I love you. So glad to have you here today. Shake somebody's hand. You don't have to hug. That's too much for you. Shake somebody's hand. Let them know you're glad to see them. Thanks for being here.